Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to Chewing the Gristle, a podcast of doom and destruction. I'm your host, Greg Cock, Gregory Cockery, or the Gristle Man, if you will. We're going to have extemporaneous conversations with a variety of very powerful musical friends. We're going to converse about life, liberty, and the pursuit of musical savagery. Is that wrong? I don't think so. So tune in. Brought to you by our friends at Wildwood Guitars of beautiful Louisville, Colorado. Fishman Transducers of the majestic and powerful community known as Andover, Massachusetts. Can you dig it? Josh Smith, ladies and gentlemen. Sometimes I have a hard time saying his name, Josh Smith. You got to kind of separate it or it kind of morphs into one giant moniker of a guitar potentate. Josh is a blues guitar phenom, but he can play so much more and it's one hell of a cool cat. Here he comes. We have today one of my favorite guitar players and guitar buddies, Josh Smith. You know, Josh, I have a hard time saying your first and last name in succession. Do other people have this problem or is it just me? I always say Josh. I have to say Josh Smith. I have to differentiate the first and last name. They can't run together. Yeah. For an incredibly common name, (laughs) it isn't one that that rolls off the tongue very well. (laughs) Well, how are you doing out there? Last time... I saw you, we were out there doing some recording at your lair, and we were very much looking forward to flying out there in the middle of March to continue our activities, and then the pestilence, the pestilence hit. Yeah. And I remember we were texting back and forth, and I said, I think this is, I think my quote was, I think this is going to go from zero to shit show in about 48 hours. And I hate to say it. But I was correct. I don't. I'm not often correct, as my wife will be the first to attest to. Um, but how you doing out there? What you've been doing during this this pestilence? Obviously, the recording thing has been put on hold, and except for maybe some fellow quarantinians that you're able to sheath accordingly, so that they don't uh, spread pathogens in your lair. What you've been doing? Um. Well, I was up until two days ago growing the beard in a prodigious fashion for the first yes. time. Yes. But I finally lost faith in it and uh, took it out the other day. Well, they itch. Yeah, the they itch. itch. And then they and then God knows what kind of creatures start lurking in there. Well, they stop. It stopped going this way and just going this way. And I was like, yeah, it's not a good look. <laughs> kind of a lumberjack thing. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, other than the beard, I've been cooking every day, which is kind of nice. nice. Um, and I've been having little spurts of productivity i'll go five days with not wanting to do anything and then i'll have a day where it's like oh i wrote a song today or <laughs> i tracked on something i needed to do people have been sending me some tracks to play on and uh, i have had one client come over a couple of times whose record i'm in the middle of producing um and we wear masks when we're in the same room and then he goes yeah. in the other room he's been singing so we've been separated by walls and glass and all that it's a bizarre time, is it not? <laughs> it's just, it's, dude. It's it's just it's unlike any other time. I mean, I, I, there's nothing to compare it to. It's just, no. yeah, it's really just crazy times. I remember my um, my grandpa was, um, I guess he was 16 in 1918, and I always remember the uh, the family tale about how 
you know, he was kind of orphaned at a younger age. So he was living on his own at age 16 in Milwaukee, the big city. And um, he went out to visit his sister uh, for Christmas. And it was right during the pandemic of 1918. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't, they wouldn't let him in the house. And we always thought, boy, that sounds, that sounds really kind of harsh. And now you totally get it. That was, that was a thing. It's like, oh, you're from the city. You've been, we have no idea where you've been, what's been going on. You ain't coming in. So yeah, it's, it, it puts a whole different spin on, on anything you've heard about, you know, you know, old family tales from back in the day or whatnot. But certainly, I mean, my kids, when this first started to happen, they're like, has anything like this ever happened before? I'm like, no, we are in uncharted territory as far as, uh, are, you know, anyone we know that's alive right now. So yeah, it's, it's bizarre. And certainly all the gigs have dried up. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, as far as long-term outcome, I don't know who's going to get hurt harder than, than the creative, uh, especially the musicians who are to tour for the most part and do those types of things. I mean, even when gigs resume, who's going to want to be there. Right. Know? Right, right, right. I was thinking last night, I was literally five in the morning because I don't sleep anymore. And it was like, is there going to be such thing as you sold out the gig anymore? Right. That's, oh. It's bizarre. And then you wonder if, you know, since there'll be less people, presumably, at these gigs, if they'll also, if venues will, by default, do a, a virtual attendance thing as well. And whether that will be for a specific amount, or is every gig going to be co-opted with some kind of uh, virtual tip jar? You know what I mean? You yeah. wonder what what's going to happen in that regard. But, but maybe like the uh, <laughs> the standards for what a platinum record is, it'll keep coming down, and then I can sell out Red Rocks now because maybe there you go, eleven hundred, perfect, or something like that. I sold out Red Rocks with a hearty forty-five heads, exactly, <laughs> and they were into it online. Oh, there were tens of thousands. Yeah. But we had 45 in there. Yeah. So we actually have a tour kind of intersecting, lining up. Dudley is, boy, I'll tell you what, he is crossing his fingers and and saying his prayers that it actually happens. And it's slated for late October. And then yeah. you're slated for late October. And then we're going to go early November. And there's some crisscrossing in there. Um, my son is like, Dad, is that going to happen? Is that going to happen? I need to make arrangements. I mean, I might, might have to get another job. I don't, it's like, no one knows what's going on yet, man. We have no idea. It, it may happen. You know, and it may be half full houses. We have no idea. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. If it does happen, like you just said, it's like, what if the clubs only allow 25% occupancy or 50% occupancy? It's like, well, then everybody better buy a fucking T-shirt. <laughs> exactly. Exactly correct. Or maybe we can... Uh, Maybe we can add a meal. Maybe you can get your cooking chops up, and we'll uh, we'll, we'll we'll play and then serve a delicious repast for a hundred dollars a head. <laughs> Every gig is New Year's Eve. <laughs> well, you did fun thing on the old uh, on the old Instagram. You know, it's it's always a weird thing. Uh, you know, I know you're the same way. It's like if you feel like doing an Instagram post, you just kind of turn the camera, you play from it, and you post it for the fun of it, and yeah, and what happens happens. But you did this this fun. Uh, just play a 12 bar blues in the key of a, and it was just, it was a fun thing to see how many people did it and, uh, did different things with it. So that was, that was pretty damn cool. Were you pleased with the way that all kind of unfolded? I was, you know, uh, for the most part, almost everybody I asked participated except for the few stragglers. Um, and it was very interesting to see 
the differences in approaches. And don't think I can't tell who just turned on the camera and who, who did 50 takes. Right. Or, you know, who didn't follow the rules and play with backing tracks or did this or did that. But just to hear, you know, it's like, you know, the blues where we come from, it's like, this is the foundation of literally everything we do as an improviser. Right. So to hear all these guys improvise, some who are not blues guys in any way, and just kind of hear how no matter what, it is always the backbone. And I really right. wanted to hear what people came up with on the fly without any, you know, instruction. And it was nice to see. And the community yeah. part of it was the, was the best part. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, to your point, I mean, the, <clears throat> it's interesting. Even people that say, well, I don't really play blues, but it was cool because as you say, it's, it's in there because you can't be a contemporary instrumentalist on the guitar without having digested it at some point by one of your influences. So it's, it's lurking in there yeah. somewhere. Yeah. If, <laughs> if, if you like those, uh, those things called melodies, you probably use that little five note scale. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's kind of a, you know, equal opportunist. Absolutely. Well, tell us a little bit about, uh, I've been enjoying your uh, new DVD, the live at the spud. Yeah. There's some savage savage playing there. I want to apologize for those bells you're hearing. I tried to turn off the messenger on my son's computer here that I'm using to uh, to do this broadcast. But for some reason, my wife is very much interested in, in, in scanning a bunch of pictures upstairs in the attic, and she keeps on group texting us all <laughs> with more incriminating photos, which I will not share with you at this point in time, ladies and oh, gentlemen. Wow. Pay no attention to those bells. Just remember, every time you hear one of these bells, it's attached with a certain degree of embarrassment. But anyway, so con so continue. Live at the Spud, you did with uh, Travis Carlton on bass and Gary Novak on drums. Indeed. And you use these those individuals quite a bit, am I right? I use those guys quite a bit, as, as much as they'll they'll allow me to, I guess. You know, uh, you know, up until before now, they were in demand, hot <laughs> musicians. And, uh, you know. They're, they're incredible, obviously. You know, Gary is, is a legend, and Travis is, you know, Travis is my brother, one of my best friends in the world. And, uh, you know, they're great musicians on top of all that. Um, so, yeah, Live at the Spud was, I'd never really done a live record. I actually did one when I was 15 years old. It doesn't count. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, you know, maybe it was time to do something live. I wanted to do very high-end video. I'd never done that. I wanted to try to, you know, have something in that 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 whatever the word is, that checklist of my list of that. Sure. I didn't have that. And uh, so, you know, the baked potato is an incredibly comfortable place to play. You know, I've been playing there since I moved to LA. So that's 18 years ago. And it's, you can play loud there. The audience has no expectations. They're used to people playing weird shit there, <laughs> playing anything. So it's like, so it's not a place where the blues police are going to come. And there are no police you know. of any kind at the baked potato. Excellent. <laughs> and uh so you know it was just a no-brainer to kind of do it there we did two nights in a row um but 98 percent came from the second night <laughs> ah yes well yeah because you you get more comfortable and you're like i believe me i i understand well it, it turned out great there's some incendiary playing out on there it sounds great and it looks great so thanks well done and i encourage you all out there who are viewing this fine broadcast on the inner Google to go out and purchase it at your earliest convenience. Please do. And I'm any day it will be actually finally on iTunes and Amazon as a digital video, which was the most impossible thing to do. 
And then when I finally gave in and paid the fortune it cost to do that, the pandemic hit and the oh, company yeah. that distributes it digitally went from, oh, 15-day turnaround to at least 90 days. So oh, now okay. it's just sitting in purgatory. In limbo land. Yeah. Well, well speaking of stuff like nowadays, I, you, I saw that you did a thing where you said, okay, on this particular week in June, I'm going to do Skype lessons. How, how many do you like to do? Is it something you do regularly and – because you know, I, I do quite a few. Well, I don't I, I don't really broadcast it all that much, but they are available on my site. And if I'm doing a live feed or something, people always ask, "Do you do Skype lessons?" And I'll yeah. say, "Yeah," and they come in and and away it will go. But how, how's your approach to it? How much do you put a cap on it? Um, do you do hour thing? How do you like to approach it? Uh, I don't. I do none. Zero. Um, I literally I never do them. It's been a couple years since I've done any at all. Um, except for like the odd, somebody just messaged me so many times that it's like, okay, one lesson here. But, um, so, you know, as these months go by and the money is not coming in and honestly, you know, the messages were just coming flooding in. Can I take a lesson? Can I take a lesson? I thought, well, you know what, instead of just opening it up to whenever, like, Hey, yes. Okay. I'm open to lessons. Why don't I just like take a week? and just kill myself for a week and do as many as I possibly can. But at least it creates like some real demand where people exactly. line up with slots and that's it. So that's what I did. Just, yeah, it was three days ago. I said, Hey, I'm going to do June 1st through the 6th. I'm only going to do 11 AM to 7 PM with lunch break. So eight a day. And it's like, they all, every one of them is signed up for awesome. Yeah. You're going to take that money and run. But at the end of those days, you may need counseling. Am I right? Yeah, it's a it's a high probability of that. <laughs> I'm, you know? It's interesting because I enjoy doing them, but I, I I don't do any more than like two in a in a day, and I always space them apart. Um, and I always have fun, but it's amazing to me how many people just want to talk. You know what I mean? Or or they want to talk gear, uh, which is all good. I don't have a problem with any of it, but it's just it's amazing to me because I. Uh, if somebody's really into it, oh, you know, how do we improvise? You know, I'll show them like a bunch of stuff in the first 15 minutes. And then they're like, but they don't want to play anything. You know what I mean? It's, it's, a, so. It's an interesting yeah, thing I, because I, I like to play together. Because of that, you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. The not being able to play together thing makes it difficult to get past like those initial, you show them something, they play it back to you. But yeah, a lot of times they don't want to just play unaccompanied in front of you for right. a while, you know? Right. So it ends up you're playing, but mostly you're, you're chatting. They're asking yeah, questions. Exactly. And that actually is my favorite part of lessons. It's, it's actually why I really do enjoy doing clinics. And I know you do too, like, because I love the, the, the question and answer, right? And, getting specific, you know, if you've got a specific question, I probably can give you some sort of an, at least my spin on it. I like Yeah, that. absolutely. And plus it's, it's fun too. I don't know if you feel the same way, but it, it's, it's, it's good for me to have to deconstruct some of the stuff. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then you find you've learned more. Oh, I guess now that I've defined what that is, I can actually, you know, reprocess it or whatever the case may be. I find it in, instructive to be instructive. Well, last, <laughs> last night, as I was uh, <laughs> kind of coming to grips with what I've 
signed up for with all these lessons. I looked back through my AOL email account <laughs> to see the last time I did a, a group of lessons, and it was like nine years ago where yeah. I did a lot of lessons back then. But I found all my old PDF scans that I have written out stuff for people. So it's like, great, now I have stuff I can talk. If I talk about with people, I can send it to them. I was like, I kind of organized myself. Perfect. So I'll be ready for this week. <laughs> awesome. Well, every little bit helps like that, as you well know. Good God almighty. Indeed. So let's talk a little bit about your uh, your history and how you ended up in L.A. Um, so you started pretty doggone young. You were one of them yeah. child prodigious. <laughs> and you were in, Northern, in Florida, but you're not, were you originally from New York, though, right? No. No, I, you I, were born was, in Florida. I was born in Connecticut. Oh, okay. But we moved to Florida when I was one year old. Got it. Okay. And, and we grew up in Fort Lauderdale, so South Florida. And, um, you know, I started playing guitar when I was six, but I got the guitar when I was three uh, for my parents. You know, it was, it was kind of out of left field. They don't play. My dad doesn't play. Um, he loves music and sports. And on the day that my sister was born, because our birthdays are only four days apart, my mom was going into labor, and my third birthday got kind of glossed over. And the story is, on the day my sister was born, my dad, on the way home from the hospital, stopped at both a, a sporting goods store and a music store and bought a tennis racket and a guitar. Ah. And brought it home to me for my birthday. <laughs> and the rest, as they say, is history. I guess so, you know, and... I banged the guitar around for a while, and then at six, I asked them for lessons. And first, I ended up at back then. There was all those uh, like chain schools, Ace and Yamaha, and all that oh, yeah. stuff. Yeah. And after one lesson, they tried to get my dad to buy like a Strat and an amp and a strap and a, you know six books. And so then he went in the in the you know the back of the classifieds and found some jazz student that had just graduated from University of Miami, and that's who I went to for the first year. Okay. Now, did you, was your dad a fan of blues-oriented stuff, or how did that thing, how did that uh, fascination commence? Absolutely, yeah, he was a fan of blues. He wasn't only a blues guy. He was, uh, you know, if I had to say what was his main thing, he was a rock and roll guy. I mean, he loved the Allman Brothers and the Rolling Stones and, you know, yeah. uh, Jimi Hendrix and stuff like that. But he also had, uh, you know, he had Giant Steps. He had Kind of Blue. He had, you know, he had a lot of records in his collection. Um, he had Bob Dylan. He had some country stuff. Um, my mom had a lot of Motown and Stax. Um, so I was hearing Otis Redding and Wilson Pickett and then Miles Davis and then the Allman Brothers and then, you know, Bruce Springsteen or whatever. Right. Uh, it was just good American music for the most part. Um, but that's, you know, when I remember vividly, though, hearing Albert King and B.B. King for the first time in the house and it flipping something in me for sure. I can dig it. So when did you start playing in bands? Was that an early thing as far as like grade school or middle school or how did it all commence? I uh, started in middle school, um, mostly best out of frustration because as I progressed as a player, uh, the music that was popular at that time was heavy metal <laughs> and you know, not that I hated heavy metal. I don't want to say that. I, I liked it. I had a sure. Columbia Records account and I got all my warrant and my white snake <laughs> and, you know, all that. I had all that shit. But the music I like to play, any kid my age who had maybe put in the amount of work I did and was getting good, 
definitely didn't like the music I liked. So <laughs> I couldn't find anybody to play with. Um, so that's when it, it became, you know what, maybe I should search out some situations where I can play because I knew I needed to to grow. My teacher was telling me, you need to play to get, you know, to get, you're at this stage where you need to be playing um, and improvising. So I started to go to blues jams in eighth grade. Ah. Yeah. And uh, that's how it started for me. And, you know, the audience would go, woo, because I was really short. And, you know, I, I, you know, it was a novelty. But I didn't care. The second, like, anybody applauded for something I did, sold. Right. You're like, this and, is cool. Uh, uh, one of the host bands at one of the jams that I would frequent, they saw uh, the possibilities of, hey, if we have this kid maybe play gigs with us, announced, maybe we'll get some better gigs and some better guarantees. So they asked me to, like, join the band. This was in between my eighth grade year and ninth grade year of, of you know, first year of high school. And uh, that's when it started for me playing gigs every weekend. And next thing you knew, that was, that was all I cared about. And, and when, at what point did you, cause you started doing some stuff with Derek trucks pretty early on, right? Yeah. Very early. So what, what about what age is were you both? Cause you're the same age as Derek or is we're the same age. He's a couple months older than me. Okay. Um, he's from Jacksonville. So we're separated by about four and a half, five hours. Um, so Derek was out there on the scene, I would say six months to a year before me, even he was 11 years old, you know? Right. And they did a story about Derek on entertainment tonight. Actually, as they did the story on 2020 about Joe, I saw that one first, but then about Derek, they did a story on entertainment tonight. And it was like, look at this kid. He lives in Florida. He's related to the Allman brothers. I love the Allman brothers. So then he was coming down to Miami to play a gig. And uh, my parents were like, we should go. You know, it, it, was, it was inspiring to me to see a kid because it was what I wanted to be doing. Sure. So anyways, we went to go see him play. And he's at that time, he was playing almost nothing but Derek, you know, Allman Brothers songs sure. and Clapton tunes and stuff like that. Uh, you know, with a he, he had joined this band that existed before him, kind of. And um but, you know, I went right up to him, started talking to him, because even though I'm relatively shy, Derek is extremely shy. <laughs> so I was more outgoing than Derek. And uh, I walked right up and I introduced myself. And so he was playing there. This is a true story. He was playing there two nights, Friday and Saturday night. But didn't know him at all. We're 12 years old. And, <laughs> and we end up talking the whole night. And because he's playing there the next night, he suggests... Why don't we have a sleepover? <laughs> I look at my parents, and he looks at his dad who's with him, and it was like, why the hell not? First night I ever met him, he slept at my house. <laughs> he stayed up all night long. I had a guitar with the Floyd Rose. I've told this story before. We tried to change the strings on this guitar with the Floyd Rose, and neither one of us could figure it out. <laughs> I probably still can't figure it out, to be honest. <laughs> but that was the beginning of our friendship. And a few months later, I joined that band and started gigging. And flash forward to this club in Fort Lauderdale called Cheer Cheers. It had two stages, and Derek would come down um, once a month from Jacksonville to play at this club. And uh, he'd play one stage, I'd play the other. We would each play four sets until four in the morning, alternating sets. Oh my God! Thirteen-year-olds. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what—that will—that'll uh, get your ten thousand hours in, though, quick. Man, that's—I tell this to people who ask me all the time about improv and 
and vocabulary. Oh, where'd you get all that vocabulary and stamina and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, that's where, you right. know, you're people on those gigs don't exist anymore for, right. for coming up people where you're forced to solo three hours a exactly. night. You know? yep. like, exactly. Exactly. That's, that's, that's where it came from. Absolutely. So at what point did you, um, move out to California. Uh, did you, did you go to college or did you just right after high school start gigging or what was your path kind of after that? No, I didn't go to college. Um, much to the chagrin of my grandparents. <laughs> I understand. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, I knew what I wanted just like I know you did. Um, and I was working already, you know? So it was like, we had done my first tour of the States in between my junior and senior year of high school. So I, I was used to touring already and that's what I wanted. So the second I graduated, we went straight in the van and started, you know, touring the States. So that lasted from, I graduated at 17 between then and 22, a good five years. That's all I did was make records and tour the States. And, uh, at 22, I got just like really frustrated with the state of things, which sounds ridiculous for a 22 year old, but I had been doing it almost 10 years at that point. And I had seen some of my other friends like Derek, although he wasn't really broken through then yet, but some other friends that I made along the way, like Kenny Wayne and Johnny Lang and other guys start to have some success. And I was still plugging away. And then I met my wife and I wanted to be a grown up and uh, pay my bills and the only option for me was make a living as a guitar player. And L.A. seemed the right move for me. And it was a true shot in the dark. But we got married in June of 2002. And then July 1st, we hopped in a van and drove all the way to California. To Los Angeles. When I moved to L.A., the goal was not to do my own thing. It was to, you know, make a living by any means necessary as a guitar player. So at first it was all sideman work and session work, mostly touring. I was touring a lot as a sideman with different, you know, styles of music, mostly pop stuff um, and doing sessions. And that was really enjoyable. And I think it's, you know, really responsible for my growth as a musician into what I am now. But yeah, over the last 18 years, Halfway through, it started to pivot back into a lot of people were actually like actively asking me to release records again and do things and go on the road and play gigs. And it just kind of happened. So now mostly I only do my own thing or I work here in my studio and now I'm producing quite a lot of records. And that's been an interesting turn. Uh, you know, I wasn't expecting it. Yes. So when you tour with your with your own band, uh, like when you're going to go over to Europe, who do you use as your, as your band? <laughs> um, yes. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is my biggest frustration in all the land is, uh, who's in my band. Like, do I have a band and, you know, I have my brothers and my best friends and, you know, being in LA, I've played with some of the greatest musicians on the planet. But every time I've gone on the road in the last 10 years, there has been a different lineup. I right. can't think of one tour that was the same ever. Um, and now it's, you know, half the time I'm using musicians based in the countries that I'm going to because right. maybe it's my first time going to Australia and they can't afford 
to, well, they can, but I can't afford to go and make money if I bring people with me. So, right. it's, you know, it's a decision. Um, that's an extreme frustration. And by far the biggest hurdle that I'm trying to clear is how do I get it to where not only can I play with the same guys, it's the guys that really want to be there. Right, exactly. Enough money that they're smiling to be there and we're happy. It doesn't have to be extreme amount of money, but just enough for everybody to be like, this is where I want to be. I, I really want to get there. I want to have my right band, you know. We interrupt this gristle-infested conversation to give a shout-out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Cox signature gristle-tone pickups. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars in Louisville, Colorado, dig it all. We were discussing the taking bands on the road. It's it's an interesting, you know, I think people from the outside when they're, you know, they've purchased the record and they've followed you over the years and so on and so forth. They just assume that you can play wherever you want, take whoever you want. You know, it's that it's, it's entirely up to you, you know, and they don't realize that, uh, you know, th- those tours, you know, they're, you don't know how much money you're going to make. Yeah, there's some guarantees, but most of the time it's, uh, there's like a rough guesstimate of how much you're going to make. And I, and I know guys over the years that, um, uh, I think you did a tour with Klaus or two, did you not over in, in Deutschland? Yeah. And, uh, I got hooked up with Klaus, um, probably 2003 or four. Um, and I had no idea what was going to transpire and it, and it's, it's turned out right over the years. But what was interesting to me is that he would have guys that would, uh, want to tour with, with named dudes. And so he would basically pay the, the rhythm section, uh, all the money he was going to make from, from the tour in terms of, uh, the guarantees and, and pretty much all the door money. Right. And so all that money was for those guys. And then he just kept all the merch money. And if you toured long enough, there was that sweet spot where he would, he would make dough. But then to your point, it's like, even though you're paying these guys, that doesn't mean they're into it. That doesn't mean they're going to lift a finger to, I mean, I'm not going to say they're all like that, but yeah, you know, if, if they don't have a a artistic vested interest in in doing it, uh, you know, they're going to be kind of mercenary about it. Whereas is I always used my my band, but because you know I'm, you know I'm I'm not in a music center. Um, I've always had guys that were like, yeah, let's go over what happens happens, and it, it always turns out where we make decent money. Uh, but then you know they really want to go, and it's a they're they're into it. They want to help do whatever is going to make it successful. They're having fun. Yeah, let's go see that castle. You know, as opposed to <laughs> give me my room and give me my advance. You know what I mean? Give me my yeah. per diem. You know what I mean, and uh, so yeah, I, I I know I I know the language, but it's 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 interesting how when you have your own band, you're doing this. You you gotta you gotta wear all these different hats. It just it just isn't waking up every day and say, oh, I get to go play guitar today. You know, no, I I have this conversation quite often with other musicians and with fans. You know, when the the inevitable question is, why don't I ever come here? Or why don't I ever go there? Or why don't, you know, why isn't Gary Novak with me at this gig? Or why, why isn't this or that? And it's, like you said, people from the outside don't really have that perspective. I've been on those tours where all the money went to the rhythm section. And I 
was lucky to break even, let alone not lose money. And even doing that, it wasn't the rhythm section I even wanted to take. It was the guys who were available and would go for the amount of money I had to offer, which still was paying me nothing. Right. And so I reached the the, the limit on doing that. And that's when it became, okay, how do I go and, and, and at least make sure I'm coming home with something in my pocket? And so that, that even makes the options even less. It's yes. like using musicians, you know, local to where you're going or – Getting finding young guys from MI. Well, that lasts for one tour, and I'm never happy either because I'm a fucking picky motherfucker. And you know, it's like it's a, it's a tough to you know. That's like I said, my biggest hurdle. Not many time, not much time is put into the thought of how do I make this show the best show it could be. Right. All the thought is to put into how do I make this show even happen. Exactly. I I understand. Dude, I couldn't imagine what it would be like to like actually plan out like, you know, I, you know, I'm around Joe all the time to think about uh, putting a show together where like maybe there was a stage and right. someone I could bring the guitars that worked for this song only and still have that guitar and someone will hand it to me. It'll be ready for that song. And I can really put together a show and make it the best I can can make it. I don't, I don't know what those, those thought processes like at all. Yeah, it's a, it's a rarefied situation. I mean, yeah. it'd be nice to, to be able to get to those problems. Right. I mean, but you know, in, in, in an interesting way though, it's like, I, you know, when you're on those, those bigger tours and again, this isn't, these are just observations. I'm not saying better, worse or indifferent, but it, you know, when you finally get to the point where, okay, you're going to go on a, a, a three week tour of say, you know, mainland Europe or whatever the case may be. And you, and you know, you're going to make enough money where everyone you're not stressed out about people being pissed off about not making money. Right. That is a huge thing. I mean, we were just worse. like, everyone's cool. What's going to happen is what's going to happen. And then you can kind of just relax. And then, but the good thing about being at that mid-level where you're just like, you know, you're getting up, you're driving a few hours, uh, sometimes more hours than you'd wish, but you, you know, you got someone who's driving the vehicle uh, and then you got a little time to sightsee. You could stop wherever you want. You don't have to worry about a bus. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And you can kind of do a little sightseeing and so on and so forth. You go to, you do the sound check, you hang out, you can restring your guitars, you do whatever. And you play there, you get that sweet spot where it's like, this is cool. Any, any bigger, it's going to get, you know what I mean? Yeah. Get more complex and there's going to be more people and there's going to be more pressure and all that kind of stuff. But when you finally just reach that spot where it's like, okay, the band's cool. They're going to have a good, I know they're going to have a good time. They're not going to be bugging me four days in. Well, how were, how were the numbers last night? Am right. I gonna, you know what I mean? <laughs> I hit my bonus. Yeah. <laughs> And, and that's, and that's, and you're a little bit more free. You're not as, as beholden. Am I right? I mean, I'd be happy to, to reach that level forever. If, if I could just keep the same rhythm section, right. I'd stay in the van and do those gigs. If I could just play with the same guys, because that's the other half of the equation is to be happy in that situation is to be playing with guys who are like-minded Right. Who know my whole catalog and we have a real language with I right. can call out a song that we haven't played in three months and they right. know it I can do this I can do that we can have a real rapport and build something together because yeah going from this to this to this I end up playing whatever set I remember to send to these people and whatever charts I remember to include and it, you know again it's all the thought is into just making that show happen 
Right. And so, yeah, it, it would be nice to at least just play with the same guys so that more organic things can happen and more thought can go into the music side of it. And it's been interesting, you know, not that, you know, I'm anybody, but I'm sure you've noticed it. In the last few years, because of this stuff and social media and Instagram, uh, you know, I have seen at least some steam be picked yes. up behind Absolutely. my name and, and yours and, and some of my other friends, and it's helping a tremendous bit. But it's also creating a situation where sometimes when I get to towns for the first time, people expect me to show up in a bus like I'm Joe. Right. You know, because they see me in these worlds all the time and think I'm killing it. I'm crushing right. it right now. Right. right? And you know, then I break a string and I have to change it myself on the bandstand. And they're like, what the hell? (laughs) I get it. But yeah, I mean, but your point about the, uh, the internet thing has definitely uh, somewhat leveled the the playing field in terms of not having to be beholden to um, uh, the arbiters of taste. You know what I mean? It's the stuff's just out there and people, no, no, granted, uh, it's still uh, there's a vast majority of people who still need to be head, you know, led by the nose hairs to uh, to you know go all in on a particular artist and so on and so forth to the point where they're willing to you know shell a hundred dollars for a ticket or something. Right. Uh, but by the same token, someone who's interested in music can, uh, if they're curious, they can investigate, they can discover someone, access all the records, videos online, all that kind of stuff, and so you can get to the point where you can show up to you know pretty much any country any city in the world and if there's a modicum of advertising you're going to get enough people there to make it worthwhile coming and that's that's the freedom i'm talking about you know what i mean it's that's unbelievably humbling to to know now some i go to some of these countries for the first time and people show up yes it's like they only know me from Instagram and YouTube and, you know, yeah, then they eventually buy my records or buy this, right. or buy that. But that's how I got in the door. And that's, yes. wow, it is humbling. Just like even what we we're talking about with the lessons, just the fact that I put that out there and I 45 lessons got signed up for in hours. Right. Like, wow, that's amazing to me. Awesome. I can't believe that people that I have enough people that care about what I do that there's nothing more humbling than that, you know? It's a beautiful thing. Yeah. But you play your ass off, so there you go. (laughs) I try. I mean, we can't all be you, man. (laughs) What? Well, we've certainly had some fun playing together. We need to do more of that. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. There's some... uh, I think people like us playing together. I think... Well, you know, it's a very conversational thing. And this, you know, it's one of the things I I talked to David uh, Grissom about, and, and we've done some playing together, too, and and we talked about the whole thing where it's like, you know, it's, 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 we live in such a competitive culture where, uh, and people are like, you know, herded into camps, you know, and they want to be able to attach their identity to their favorite flavor and want this to be a battle of him versus him. But, you know, guitar players reach a level where you just want to have fun and communicate on stage, you yeah. know, and have this conversation. And that if you're, yeah. You're confident in, in who you are and, and, and what you do. It's not a matter of what you can't do or whatever the, or what the other guy do that, that you can or vice versa. It's a matter of you just be you and then you have this conversation with each other. And when it when it, it does that, which I experience every time we play together, it's 
it's a blast and people dig it because they realize there isn't there isn't that thing happening you know what i mean well because you can't when you see something completely spontaneous and filled with joy how do you deny it you know what i mean like when two people are just having a good time making something up out of thin air right and but but <laughs> they're talking to each other and they're reacting what's better than that you know what i right. mean and this yeah that's the way I always approach jam situations. It's funny. I'll, I'll take some shit sometimes in the jam situation when there's more than two guitar players, when there's three or four, I'm willing to be the guy that sings and passes it around and doesn't even take a solo on a song. Sure. I want to hear these guys. I love every one of them. You know what I mean? And right. whatever, not everybody needs to solo every minute and it's not a competition. People on YouTube can argue about, Oh, he handed it to him in this or whatever. Right. He's just there to make music and have a good time. You know? Exactly correct. Yeah. And uh, we're going to be doing more of that, hopefully, in the UK. But uh, we got we got to figure out a time for us to come back out there and finish our record out there. Yeah, man. I that, I'm, I was looking forward to doing that. Um, uh, me too. But we'll do it. By God, it's been interesting. Um, you know, I've been doing, you know, a few live feeds. We do four a week and I got my son in here with me and we've, we've figured out ways to kind of mic everything. I'm like a technical dunce. I mean, I've always been, I mean, all the videos I've been doing for, you know, for the whole first month and a half of lockdown and people are, you know, it's, it's been kind of funny too. Cause I got people messaging me, Hey, what are you doing to get those sounds? I'm like, I turn on the iPad, you know, it's just, it's just what happens in the room. But now, you know, we've got Dylan's set close mic and overheads and I'm, you know, and all kinds of stuff. We're going through this program and doing that and the next thing. And, uh, but I've enjoyed just kind of, you know, refining, you know, stuff that I'm doing. And it's, it's kind of clarified my vision of what I wanted to do. Have you experienced that on this, on this little sojourn? Has it, given, has it been a kind of a timeout where you're just kind of like, yeah, I was thinking of, you know, it's giving you time to kind of reflect on stuff and just say, yeah, that other shit wasn't all that important. I'm just going to do this. Or what do you think? No, no, <laughs> no. I wish I could say that was true. Um, but this is, this is probably the least I've played guitar in my entire life. And Oh, no kidding. Yeah. It's really weird. Um, but I have, I have invested a little bit in, in upping the video game here at the studio. So I just finished actually like, cause it was always in my plan to wire up the studio for full-time permanent video where if I was producing a record, I could offer to someone footage of their entire session, multi-camera yeah. and blah, blah, blah. So I've set that up now and I can also stream live with all the cameras, multi-cams and it's, it's great. So next week I'm probably going to do my first test on that. But awesome. I feel weird. Everybody's doing these streaming concerts and it just feels weird asking people to pay when they're all in the same boat we're in at the moment. So I've been, yeah. I've been actually I, the least active I've ever been on social media. During yeah. This. The, uh, the, the money thing is interesting. I mean, I, you know, I do these, I do two things a week for, for Wildwood and I do two things for Fishman and because, you know, it's on, on behalf of them. I mean, I do my thing and, and it's all kind of under the understanding that it's being uh, affiliated with those those entities. So it's weird for me to, you know, to ask for dough. People are like, well, you know, my wife's like, well, it's still, you know, your music. You should maybe put some. And when Dylan plays, and he's not, you know, getting separate dough for him. And right. And I've just been weird about it. Um, I did one separate thing where I charge, but you know, it, it's it's really. Fr I've been fortunate in the fact that I do have these other 
things around other than just playing, you know, doing my gig thing and selling CDs and so on and so forth. So I feel kind of bad for asking money, even though it's, it is your artistry, you know what I mean? You're, you're, you're throwing out your tunes, but I just feel weird about it. So, but other people, I totally get it. Their, 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 their entire livelihood is, is about touring. And now that's all been taken away for a long period of time. So they do like a weekly thing and they charge X amount of dough and I get it. And, and, and it seems to be working for a lot of people. Uh, how long that will um, still be of interest to people that they're going to want to contribute and what effect that will have on down the line when you can actually go out and play again, yeah. if that will have an effect on how people perceive value. I, I don't know, but I guess we'll, you got yeah, to cross that bridge when you come to it. Why, even though I invested in the gear, why I haven't started it yet, the streaming of gigs, because I've been just hesitant on how to approach it. I think I'm going to dip my toe in the water and maybe do like a only ticketed events, like on that stage at website or something like right. that, where, Hey, this is what it costs. Either you come or you don't. And it's not on YouTube. It's not out there for every, either just right. come watch it or you don't. Um, also in a couple of weeks, the, the baked potato just built a streaming setup because they're actually like really struggling, which is, uh, you know, it makes sense. And, but it's, a, it's, it's scary because I mean, they've been open, 45 years right they're on the verge of possibly closing so I'm they need to advertise you can get there. those potatoes to go or something yeah yeah exactly nobody's going to the baked potato just for the potatoes <laughs> unfortunately they are amazing but i mean it's not a, it's not a thing really and so we're going to do a gig there in a couple of weeks but that's more for to, to help them quite honestly try to keep the doors open i mean because it would it would be a just a disaster if we lost that place how about your um, the taco place we went up? Is it beer and taco? Suds? What was it called? Salsa and beer. Salsa and beer. Hopefully they're doing takeout. Have you been patronizing them during the line? The, the line is down the fucking block. <laughs> Unbelievable. That's fantastic. You know, well, you know what? It's been hard. I mean, I I wrote a tune called "I've I've gained a quarantine" because <laughs> it's. The food has been, you know, I, I've, I'm going on now three weeks without with curtailing my sugar because for the first part of the, uh, I mean, I was just getting the generic Captain Crunch. That's that's no, that's when you know you're bad. Oh yeah, when you get that big jumbo bag of of cap, generic Captain Crunch, and just taking the biggest bowl you can find and just going and yep. just having that. I've been pretty good uh, with the cooking. And feeling okay, where it's hit me is uh, I'll make Cinnabons or brownies at four in the morning. Yes. <laughs> I can dig it. Yeah. Well, now I'm on the thing where I'm staying away from the sweets, but I'll eat like an entire watermelon. And I'll just sit down and just cut it up and start feasting like a demon. <laughs> but hey, you got to eat. It's the bottom line. You got. You have to. It is. <laughs> it is required. Let's talk a little bit about some gear just for the hell of it, because after all, we are guitar players. Yeah. And uh, that purple telly creature that you have. Now, who is that made by? And you did tell me a little something about a potential signature instrument. I don't know what stage that's at or if you can talk about it, but. Yeah. Okay. So my main telly, the Chapin, the black one, it's a Bill Chapin guitar. Uh, he's from Portland, Oregon. And that's been my main guitar going on 15 years. And I love it. 
as far as signature guitar thing goes, the thing we discussed is real. Uh, I actually have the prototype, but it's still something I can't say. Okay. To the masses. Right. And uh, it will be coming out at NAM. And I'm ex- if NAM exists. Exists. And exactly. uh, I'm super excited about that. It's a big deal for me. And uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, my, the main guitar the last 15 years has been this Bill Chapin Telly, which is basically a 50 style Telly, maple neck, ash body. Uh, the only difference is it had a compound radius, but I've refretted it so many times that now it's just nine and a half. Okay. And um, the pickups were wound by Bill Chapin. They're custom. Uh, there's a titanium bridge. That's a little different than a 50s telly. Right. Other than that, it's pretty stock, 50s telly style. Now, last time I was out there, you played me some delicious morsels from a, uh, a record you were working on with the big band, and it sounded magnifico. What is the status of that glorious recording? Also in the air, because yeah. I'm working on something special for that. Um, that if it comes to pass would be the best way to release it and something really ex- exciting. Excellent. But I don't know if it's going to happen, and I also can't talk about that. <laughs> and um, <laughs> But suffice it to happen, say, exciting uh, things are in the pipeline. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the nice thing about having a studio is I am able to work on music all the time. So I've got that record done, which nobody's heard and except for my friends and uh, I think people will be shocked when that comes out. I'm not really even telling. I just want it to come out and be people go like, whoa, because I'm not really mentioning it. And then I have my next regular record done in the can, you know, more blues-based album. That's the nice thing about the studio is I, I can always be recording. You, know? you can hammer it out. Yeah, you know, and before this pandemic, I was inspired, and I was hammering shit out. So the the pandemic has has slowed things down for sure. Yes, but actually, like next week, some work will resume. Uh, people are getting braver. Uh, Eric Gales is flying out here on Tuesday. Oh, he is. And him and myself and Joe are going to spend a few days writing for his record, which now we'll record in September. We were supposed to have done that already, right? Um, but at least we're going to—he's coming out, and we're going to write for a few days, and yeah, get ready for his record. Excellent. Interesting. So he's making the journey out there. So there are planes flying. Isn't that, have you noticed how few planes are in the sky? It's ridiculous. It's, it's so weird. You actually hear one, you think it's like a UFO or something. It's like, what the hell's all that noise? Like, oh, that's right. There used to be, (laughs) there used to be planes everywhere. Well, I live in the flight path for Burbank and you know, it's every 10 minutes you see a plane at least. And then, Now it could be hours, and it's just like, wow, this is unbelievable. It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy activity. Well, I'm hoping to get out there sooner than later. We gotta, gotta figure it out. But you know what would, would be great? I mean, if, if if you could just get a test that said, I mean, it's not a, an absolute, um, you know, sure thing, but at, at least it, I think it would make people far less. Uh, uptight about traveling. You can just take a test to see if you even had it. You know, we all, pro- you know, we, there's, I bet there's a bunch of us that had very mild reactions or whatever the case may be that have had it. And then you'd be like, okay, it looks like I've had it. I'm going out to California. I'm doing, you know what I mean? You'd be far and people would be, wouldn't be uptight to be around you. You wouldn't be about uptight going places. So well, that'll really 
loosen things to, up when that happens. You have to get approved to get the like my son. He had his his birthday. I'm uh, not his birthday, but he had his his physical at his you know pediatrician. But they gave him the antibody test. But they had to like put in to get approved to give him the antibody test. Ah, and uh, he had them. He had the so he's had it. You know what I mean? No and kidding. So that's, that means you and your wife have probably had it. Yeah, but I've had absolutely no symptoms. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I, I, you know, whatever. I don't, I'm not a guy who normally gets sick, you know, so maybe I have good antibodies. I don't know. I think it's all the Coca-Cola that I drink. It just kills everything inside of me. But <laughs> at least that's yeah, what I, was, I, I, I did a trip to Boston uh, right before, uh, it was right as things were starting to kind of happen. Nothing had really shut down yet. And I did a trip to Boston and I, and as I was flying back, I was sitting in the very last row and the air conditioner was just on me. And I was like, well, if it was in here, I'm going to have it. Yeah. And when I got back, you know, I had a little bit of like a tight chest thing, but you know, I'm, I have asthma every now and again from animals and my, you know, I was with my cats every now and again, I react. So I have no idea if I had it, you know what I mean? I, who the hell knows? It would just be so nice to be able to get that antibody test to say, yep, we're good. You know what I mean? But what are you going to do? Yeah, but I mean, then on the other hand, it's like, let's say you feel comfortable and it's time to go for you. Right. Where do you go? You got to convince everybody else you got to do something with or. Exactly. You know, what if the state you need to go to is closed for business, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah. Or the country. Or what? Let's say we get over to the UK in October and November, and the second wave happens, and they say, "Yeah, we're shutting flights down again." I, and the next thing you know, we'll be eating shepherd's pie for three <laughs> for three months as we're sequestered in the UK. Yeah, but, well, like uh, I, I just booked a festival in Australia for next year, a big one that I've been working on. You know, with the guy that I work over there for for a couple years. But it's like everyone I talk to there says they they have no clue if it will actually happen or if it'll happen, but only be local artists or any of that. Right. But it's like, what am I supposed to do? Just not book anything forever? Right. You got to book it and see what happens. It's it's bizarre. And then the other thing is too is like, like I had a you know offer come in two days ago, and it was for less money than than usual. It was with this other artist, so we're kind of doing this package thing, and it was kind of for this weird festival, and I'm like what is, are we supposed to take less money now? Because they're, you know what I mean? It's like, I, at what point do you go, well, yeah, people are going to be hurting so bad that the money's are, the, the money's going to go down. It's like, it's going to be interesting to just kind of feel all this stuff out and figure out what the deal is. It's a brave new world. I mean, I'm reading all the, you know, you know, I'm a big sports guy and like looking at what's going on with baseball because they're, you know, their season hasn't started yet, but right. all the arguing between the owners and the players because the players want to get paid their normal contract. And the owners are like, well, yeah, but we're going to play in front of empty houses and right. make no money. How can we pay you your normal contract? And I see both sides of the equation. Yep. Well, you know what, though? It's like, you know, um, a few million out of a multi-million dollar contract still sounds pretty good to me. But then again, <laughs> I don't have their overhead. To me, the players are going to be the ones that are going to have to give in because the own, if I'm an owner, even if I'm a billionaire, why do I want to lose a million dollars every time we take the field? Just to, I'm under no obligation to bring baseball back just to lose money, you know? True. Yeah. Who knows? 
as much as I wish they would because I'm bored out of my mind. <laughs> well, there's always Netflix. Oh, my God. Every night we're arguing about what to watch on Netflix. Yeah. You know, I do my little live streams in the afternoon. There's always like an hour sound check trying to get stuff figured out. Then we play the thing and then afterwards make some kind of feast. And then we all sit in the other room. And when I got my three of my four kids are, are still at home here. And then my wife trying to argue to figure out what to watch on the, I mean, granted, these are first world problems. Don't get me. Majorly, yeah. But it's, it's, uh, but they're eating me out of house and home. I got to be honest with you. It's like, you know, even, and then at first, you know, when, when the quarantine started, you're like, well, I, you should really have two weeks worth of food in the house. Like, where am I supposed to put two weeks worth of food? The modern house is not, you don't have enough freezer space and refrigerator space. I mean, we got a freezer in the basement. You know, when you got six people, all my size feasting like warriors of the night. Yeah. It's difficult to, uh, to yeah. have that amount of food in the home. But yeah, it, and then you'd cook a bunch of stuff and there'd be like leftovers and then someone in the night, a certain Dylan perhaps <laughs> comes into the refrigerator and just, I, I, my nickname for him is the nightcomer because he comes in the night and he <laughs> empties out the refrigerator. So yeah. And then the real problem is that you, uh, you, you went to the store that week and the only toilet paper was single ply. And it's exactly, like, that's what I'm in right now. Is that my son's like, what is this crap? You've never seen single ply toilet paper in his life. You know? Yeah, exactly. Well, you, I always <laughs> should say you should try the toilet paper in Germany. That, that used to be my that used to be my thing. I used to say is like, you know, sometimes people don't have the friendliest looks on their face when you're walking down the street in Germany. And the reason is not because they're not friendly people. It's because of the toilet paper. Yeah. I tried to explain to my wife one time the toilets with the shit ledge. Oh, yeah. I, I... The meat on a shelf. Yeah, there's a shelf, so it catches it. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to smell it the whole time. You're That's right. <laughs> Examine your artistry. <laughs> That's the, the, the shelf in the toilet and the shower that, that doesn't have any chance of stopping the water from flooding the bathroom. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's, it's like, this big. Am, I, am I doing this wrong? Yeah. That's the- <laughs> They take showers differently, or is it the goal to get the water outside of the shower? Oh, it's yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Never a dull moment on the European excursions. Yep. But it sounds pretty good right about now. I'd love to get back over there and cause some trouble. But uh, supposed to be there right now. Good God <laughs> Almighty! I w- I had I had seven weeks straight. I'm in the middle of right now. If I was there. Six, uh, five and a half weeks of touring and two weeks of teaching in Italy. That, of course, that was the first thing to get canceled. And, yeah. But yeah, that's what I'm supposed to be in the middle of right now. No, <laughs> oh, it's too bad. Yeah. What you, hey, well, what, let's let's just hope that our fall extravaganza is going to happen because that'll be awesome. I hope so because you know I was last in the UK last February, and I purposely told Dudley, hey, instead of making it the beginning of the year, spring, winter, again, let's wait until that back half of next year. So it's been 18 months. We build up even more hype. I'll have the next record, the secret record, blah, blah, blah. It'll be great. So now if it gets canceled, then it'll just be, oh, it'll be two plus years since I've been to the UK. Oh, good Lord. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, old Dudley, he's going, bless his heart. His posts are hysterical. I'm going great. He's got young kids. He's got very young kids. Yeah. And a giant dog. 
<laughs> I loved how productive he was the first 10 days. It was like, oh, yeah. slow yeah. down, bro. Slow yeah. down. You're going to burn out. Oh, he's a character. He's the, I love him, though. Love him. He's a great dude. Well, listen, we have... We have covered all of our subjects. An hour has passed. It's been an absolute joy. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thank you. You know, I've never been to Wildwood. What's that now? You've never been? I've never been to Wildwood Guitars. We'll have to rectify that. I need to go. I I want to do kind of a, um, we've talked about doing some gigs out there and maybe doing a thing where I bring different people in and do stuff. And we definitely have to make that happen. They just moved into a new location, which is is awesome. Because prior to that, they're in this place in downtown Louisville, Colorado, uh, which was cool, but it was kind of a smaller, the showroom was, people walk in, they're like, you're kidding me, this is it? And it's like, yeah, you don't realize that this entire building has little doorways and there's little, you know, there's 4,000 guitars lurking behind the walls, right? Yeah. So now it's all in one place where it's a really tasteful showroom in different rooms where you can check, check stuff out. And then in the back is where all the warehouse stuff is and you can kind of see it but it's really really cool so yeah i want to i want to see it it shall be done i also want to note that you're wearing howlin wolf and i'm wearing barry white <laughs> we've we've chosen well <laughs> <laughs> we've done all right <laughs> all right my friend well, it's a pleasure stay safe as they say and uh we'll hopefully see you sooner than later i hope so my friend i i hope so Excellent. all right take care josh thank you so much we'll see you soon all right guys thanks bye Thank you so much, folks, for tuning in. Special thank you to Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, and the Mighty Fishman Transducers for making this podcast possible. If you enjoyed yourself, ladies and gentlemen, please subscribe and review so that people can get the word out that this is worth experiencing. Can you dig it? Thanks again. We'll see you soon, or you'll hear me soon.